Welcome to The Hoop Commitment. I'm your host, Mike Nielsen. Join me every week to get inside the greatest minds in basketball nutrition, training, and leadership to elevate your game and improve the way you eat, train, and lead. Welcome to episode 25. I just got back from LA last night after a two-day functional soft tissue transformation course. It's a Gray Institute program put on by Lenny Parasino from the LA Clippers, and it was one of the best learning weekends I've ever had. We went deep into the fascial system and how to assess, treat, and train athletes, and I left with a ton of tools to help my players. If you're interested in learning more, you can find out about the weekend workshop and online version of the course at grayinstitute.com. Now today's episode is a special one for me because I've been following Alan Stein's work as a basketball strength coach for a lot of years. He's one of the best in the business, training players like Kevin Durant, and I personally bought his jump programs and training manuals so I can tell you firsthand that he knows his stuff. And after 15 years of him running a successful business and training NBA athletes, he's now transitioned to giving keynote speeches and workshops to some of the world's greatest companies including Starbucks, American Express, and Pepsi. And today we talk about his book, Raise Your Game, which is a must-read for any player, coach, or parent that wants to take their performance to the next level. Here's Alan Stein. Welcome to the Hoop Commitment Podcast. How you doing? I'm fantastic. It's great to be with you. Well, it's a real cool experience for me to have you on the show because I modeled a lot of my career over the last 15 years off of your great work in strength conditioning. But in the last couple of years, it seems like you've pivoted more into the consultant speaking world. So I'd love to hear what got you into basketball strength training and what's kind of positioned you or pivoted you out of it. Most certainly. Well, I appreciate you taking notice and I'm, I'm honored I've been able to contribute something to your career. That's fantastic to hear and, and certainly something that motivates me. Uh, I think the easiest way is to kind of paint the picture from the very beginning. And I fell in love with the game of basketball at probably four or five years old and it's crazy that here four decades later, basketball is still a major pillar in my life. And I'm incredibly grateful uh, that I've spent my entire life involved in something that I'm passionate about and something that I really enjoy. And, and that's been really cool. I mean, I, I certainly started as a player, uh, was, a, was a decent high school level player, uh, went on to play at Elon University down in North Carolina. And then I knew that I wanted to make my living in the game of basketball. And in college, uh, actually the latter part of high school and then all throughout college, I started to develop an equal affinity for the performance training piece uh, for strength and conditioning and improving athleticism and, and vertical jump and all of that stuff. So when I graduated college, I thought, what better career than to combine my old love of basketball with my new love of strength, conditioning and performance training? And I jumped headfirst in and did that for almost 20 years, uh, at which point I just decided I was ready for a change. I was ready for a new challenge. I was ready to do something different. Uh, I'd always been enamored by the professional speaking world, and I just decided to take all of the lessons and mindsets and, and disciplines and routines and things that I had learned through my basketball journey, and I decided to apply those to uh, and point those at a corporate audience uh, as a professional speaker. And been doing that. I'm going into my fourth year now, and I'm having a blast serving a corporate business audience through the lens of a basketball performance coach. So I'm, I'm still teaching and talking about the lessons that I learned in the game. I'm just doing so uh, in suit and tie instead of in uh, shorts and sneakers. 
I'd love to chat about your book, Raise Your Game, because I think it's an awesome resource, not just for basketball players and athletes, but for anyone wanting to improve the way they perform in life. And you got so many great stories in the book about CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, legendary coaches, NBA all-stars that can be applied to anyone's life. So what inspired you to write the book? Well, I love that you bring up the high utility of, of these principles, because that's the part that I find most exciting is that whatever it takes for a basketball player to be a high performer on the court, well, it's the same principles and mindsets and routines and disciplines that it takes anyone else to be a high performer in any area of their life. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about my work is that the stuff that I, I learn and I share to the business world, well, that all applies to me as a father. Uh, that applies to me as a coach. That applies to me in any area of my life uh, that I aim to be extraordinary in. It's all the same type of stuff. And and to me, that, that makes the work a lot of fun. Uh, as far as writing the book, uh, there was actually a few reasons that I decided to do it. Uh, one, I've read, I've been a voracious reader my entire adult life. And there have been many books that have had a profound impact on me. Uh, and just the fact that somebody that you've never met could write something and you read it and it changes your perspective and how you view the world, I just think is a really cool thing. So I've, I've always had a really profound respect for authors and, and for the book community. So I thought if there's a way I could contribute to that, if I could write something that has a positive impact on someone else's life, that's just a really cool thing to me. So that was one of the reasons. Uh, the other reason was, you know, after spending 20 years building up my resume and my brand in basketball, I made a leap over to the corporate space where I had zero name recognition, zero credibility, and to be honest, zero experience because I've never had a corporate job in my entire life. And I needed to do something that would help me uh, improve my credibility, that would show folks in the business world that the stuff I have will be of value to them. I mean, I knew it would be, uh, and the groups that I had already worked with uh, confirmed that it was, but I thought a book was a great I guess, kind of introduction into who I am uh, and to what I, I, I speak about and what I can help with. So uh, that was the second reason. And then the third reason was what it took to organize the book was really great for my, my speaking profession because it made me get hyper clear on my messages and my principles and my stories. It made me organize all of my content, which absolutely helped me as a speaker. So those were really the three reasons that I felt writing a book was one of the first things that I wanted to do. Well, the book's a perfect compliment for my podcast. First off, because you broke the book down into threes, which I believe is the simplest form of complexity. And so you wrote it for players, coaches, and teams. And then it's all about mastering the basics or the principles. So I'd love to hear your advice first for a player. What are some of the basics that players have to master? Well, if we're gonna talk specifically about basketball, I mean, anything you do on the court starts at your feet. Um, I mean, every shot you take, every pass, every rebound, every time you handle the ball, everything starts at your feet. So I think the most basic component for any player is going to be footwork. You know, being able to pivot off of either foot, forward pivot, reverse pivot, being able to accelerate and decelerate, uh, being able to move laterally, uh, being able to jump and land softly and quietly. I mean, everything starts at the feet. Uh, along those same lines, uh, the ankle is statistically the most injured area on basketball players of every age at every level. Uh, so it's safe to say that the feet are really, really important. So if, I think if we're going to talk just basics on the court, 
got to make sure that you have sound footwork in everything that you do. You know, I've, I've had a chance to spend time with some of the best shooters in the game, and they'll tell you that footwork is the vast majority of shooting is proper footwork and proper rhythm and timing. And yes, your, your shooting mechanics and your upper body certainly play a large role in that. I'm not taking away from that. But it's hard-pressed to find anything in the game of basketball that doesn't revolve around the feet. So when it comes to on the court, feet are vital. Uh, when it comes to the other areas of leadership, of being influential and impactful, of being a, a great communicator, all of those things that you would want a player to be as well, I think the most basic component is the ability to listen. The best coaches that I've ever been around were very active listeners. They were always asking their team questions and taking the pulse of their team. The best players I've been around were always asking questions of their coaches and of their teammates. And then this is the, the one that has the most utility as I move to the business world, because whether you're a leader, you know, you're an executive or a manager, uh, whether you're in sales, uh, whether you're in customer service, listening is arguably the most important tool that you have in your toolbox. So uh, those are two examples of basics uh, that I think everyone in those different domains should be working on relentlessly. Well, you mentioned in the book, you have all these great stories about some of the coaches have been around, coaches like Brad Stevens or Coach K. And one of the things you said is that all of them focus on creating their environment. And so for the coaches out there wanting to build like an unbreakable culture, what are some of the things they could do to lead their players and staff? It all starts with caring. I mean, first and foremost, you have to create an environment of love, an environment where, where all of your players know that you care about them as a human being first and a player second, you know, that you don't just like them because they're good at basketball or you don't just like them because they can help you win games. You really and truly care about their well-being, their happiness, their development. Uh, what's important to them is now important to you. And, and once you've created this atmosphere where everybody cares about each other and everybody respects each other, then you can start getting the requisite buy-in and believe in with all of the other standards that you'll have. And, you know, it's easier to hold people accountable when they know that you really care about them. Um, you know, it's, it's easier to be hard on somebody and really challenge them and push them when they know you care about them. So uh, I would say the very first step to creating any type of really unique and special culture is making sure that everyone knows that you care. Well, to me, that just speaks of servant leadership or being a level three leader. And one of the quotes in the book that you talked about, you said that whether you're a CEO, manager, coach, or a good old fashioned boss, you work for your people. They don't work for you. And so that's got to seem a little counterintuitive to most. So can you dig a little bit deeper to that? Most certainly. And that is a really important mindset to have. And it's one that I share in my keynotes and workshops now. And 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 I let, when I'm working with different leadership groups, I say that's, that, that exact same phrase. And, and I don't know who originally said that. I'm certainly not the original author. I, I, I got that from someone. But it's, yeah, your people don't work for you. You work for them. And I think that mindset, you know, if we'll just use a CEO or a head coach as an example, if you wake up every day thinking, how can I serve my people? How can I add value to them? How can I, you know, take some of the friction off of their job? Uh, how can I, you know, add more value to their plate? If you wake up with that mindset, it just, it flips the script. I mean, it, it changes everything. I mean, it makes you much more of a magnetic and attractive person. You know, people will want to go the extra mile for you because they really believe that you're doing everything you can to serve them and to pour into them. And, and you know, especially when you start talking about massive organizations, you know, I've worked with companies that have 10,000 employees. And for that mindset of, I don't have 10,000 people trying to serve me, I'm trying to serve 10,000 people, 
it, it, it might sound like verbal semantics, but boy, it's, it's a really life-changing mindset. Well, I've learned so much about servant leadership from being a father. And I think as a coach, I really cared about my players, but not to the level of I care about my kids. And I care about them so much that I care enough to, to not just love them, but correct them and guide them and have the tough conversation. And so sometimes I think we get confused with servant leadership, always being soft or being passive. And what I love about servant leadership, it could be so powerful that you care enough about uh, an employee, a teammate, a player, that you're going to have those difficult conversations. Absolutely. I love that you brought that up. And yeah, I mean, the really the microcosm of all of this is being a parent. And there's so many different aspects that we kind of know intuitively as parents, uh, or in our case as fathers, but then for some reason we don't always apply those to the rest of our life. And that's, you just said it perfectly. You know, you know how much you love your children, which means you want to do anything you can to help guide them and model for them and teach them to grow up to be happy, fulfilled, you know, self-aware contributors to this world. And we know that in order to do that, we have to be able to hold them accountable, that we have to be able to discipline them and to course correct when they make mistakes. Now, we do that with compassion and with empathy. You know, one of the best tools I believe as a father is when I take a second, you know, my, I have twin sons that will be 10 in March and I have an eight-year-old daughter. You know, I try to take a moment to remember what was I like when I was 10? You know, what were some of the mistakes that I made or what were some of the desires I had? And, you know, I think that empathy allows me to connect with my children to a much greater degree. You know, people give younger kids a hard time today because they're always on electronics. Well, you know, if I'm being honest, when I was 10 years old, if I had an iPad, I would have wanted to be on that thing 24 hours a day. No question. So I don't judge my children for wanting to be on their iPad. I try to have empathy when discussing, we're going to put some parameters in place on when you can and can't use it. And then here's the reasons why. Well, the reason I bring that up is one, I do believe empathy is one of the most important tools that any leader should have. Um, that whenever you can take a step back and try to view the world the best that you can through the other person's lens, it's going to be a, a nice way to help deepen the connection you have with them. But then you bring up a great point about accountability and, and discipline. And, you know, we do that to our children because intuitively we know that's required for them to grow up to be contributors to this world. Well, we should want to do that with our teammates and our colleagues and our coworkers. You know, uh, holding somebody accountable is not something that you do to them. It's something you do for them. Holding someone accountable, whether it's your child or your colleague, is one of the best gifts you can give them because you're basically saying, look, I believe in you and I care about you so much that I'm not going to let you slide. I'm not going to let you keep performing well below our standard. I'm going to hold you to a higher level. And I do believe that's one of the best gifts we can give someone else. And not only do I practice that in trying to hold others accountable, uh, I'm very selective in surrounding myself with an inner circle of people that hold me to the highest level of accountability. And when I mess up, which happens quite frequently, these people care enough to hold me to the fire and get me to raise my game. I didn't understand it when I was in high school, but my coach always would say, if I'm talking to you, you should be excited. If I'm course correcting you, that shouldn't let you know that I care about you. You should really start worrying if you make a mistake and I don't mention anything to you. And I never got that because as a, as a young athlete, sometimes you feel like people are picking on you when they're coaching you. But now as a parent, I've really noticed that, you know, in the weight room, if the people I really care about are the ones I'm going to coach, sometimes I could find myself, I might be lost in my own world or, you know, I see them doing the wrong thing, but is it really worth the battle? And I think to really serve someone, you have to care enough to have those tough conversations. So as I was reading this book, 
I was just loving all the different connections between the business world and the athletic world and the family world. And I think that's the beautiful thing about principles. Everything you talk about in this book is going to make you a successful family member, the teammate, business leader. So I think it's just such a great connection between all three of them. I appreciate you saying that. And it's one of the things that you just mentioned there, I think is true for all of us is age and experience can be one of our best teachers. And, and the way that, you know, when you were in high school and you felt like your coach was kind of picking on you, Yeah, I think most people feel that way when we're that age. I certainly know I did. I mean, my coach was always so hard on me, and it wasn't till 20 years later that I had a strong appreciation for why that was the case. But this is even more reason for guys like you and I to have high empathy, because when I'm, and I'm using air quotes, even though this is an audio podcast, when I'm hard on my children, I have the empathy to know that they're probably feeling the same way that you and I felt when we were playing in high school. Like, why is my dad picking on me? Why is he giving me such a hard time? So I try to explain that to them. And I'll even preface things with, you know, you probably don't understand why I'm saying this to you right now, but you will in a few years. And through my life experience, I realized this is something that I need to share with you or, or tell you about or discipline you for. So I try to go into it with that understanding. And that was why, I mean, I wasn't able to right raise your game uh, until I was in my early 40s because there's no way I would have had the wherewithal to write that when I was in my 20s because most of these lessons didn't appear until the latter part of my life. And some of these lessons, someone had planted that seed 20 to 30 years ago And I just now saw the light and just now started to figure it out. And, you know, my guess is 20 years from now when I'm 60, I'll have another book in me because I'll have to share all of the different insights and perspectives I learned from 40 to 60. So it's definitely a an ongoing process. And we should all be continuing to learn uh, no matter how old we are. Well, another trilogy that you use in the book is that you wrote that coaches develop players, players form teams and teams empower coaches. And so it's this nice circular connected web that pretty much all works together. And one of the principles you talk about to creating strong teams is role clarity. And you mentioned that it's basically having everyone understand how the machine works. And so as I read this, I think, well, we're kind of in an age where calling someone a role player seems like a put down. So how can coaches, how can parents, how can we help people define their role and fit within that machine? I love that you brought up something about terminology because I've always been fascinated with words and by language. And I would agree that every single word has a connotation and a connotation is simply the emotions that are evoked from that word. A perfect example. We were talking about accountability earlier uh, and discipline. I think a lot of people have a negative connotation of the word accountability or discipline. They think it's a bad thing, whereas I actually have a very positive connotation of both. Uh, I think accountability and discipline are the keys to freedom, the keys to happiness, the keys to high performance. So same thing. You just said it perfectly. I do believe that society has created this construct where when someone's called a role player, they look at that as a negative. So a couple things. One, if I was a coach, I would either choose to use different terminology. If for some reason, every kid on my team thinks being called a role player is a bad thing, then I have two choices. One, I can either call it something else It may be a word that gives them a better connotation, or I can explain to them that no, being a role player, that is not a put down. That's actually a huge compliment. You know, you are a piece of this puzzle and we cannot complete this puzzle without you. You know, if you think about it, if you look at the NBA, 450 players in the league, give or take, really there's only about, and I say this very respectfully, about 20 superstars that can do just about everything. 
your LeBron James, your Giannis, your KDs, outside of those top 20, the other 430 players in the league are role players. Those guys all have one specific skill set, sometimes two, that they can do at an elite level, and they're rather average at everything else. And they have a very specific role on their team, whether it's a spot-up shooter or to be a rebounder or a defender or a playmaker. But think about that. You're talking about the best players in the world, the upper 0-1% of the basketball world, and they're still considered role players. Uh, so usually when working with young people, I give them that explanation, and then they're usually okay with me calling them that. But as you just said, you have to paint the picture so that everybody knows what their role is and why their role is important for the team to be successful. You know, And the hard thing about roles, especially in basketball or in business for that matter, is your role is not always what you want it to be. Your role is what the team needs it to be for the team to be successful. Um, and we'll use basketball since, since that's your playground. You know, it, it's easy to convince a player, hey, you're going to be the starting shooting guard and you're going to shoot 20 times a game. You're our first offensive weapon and threat and you can pretty much have the green light to shoot any shot you want. Like that's the easiest role in the world to buy into. Every player on the planet wants that role. But how do you convince the backup point guard that you're not going to play very much, but I need you to come to every weight room session, every film session, every workout, every practice, and every game, and I need you to bust your butt, and your number one goal is to make our starting point guard the best player he can be because he's going to play a lot more than you. And that's a much harder role to get a young person to buy into. But as any coach will tell you, that role is vital to the performance of the team and the success of the team. That if you only have five really good players and you don't have five other players that can push them in practice, you'll stagnate very early in the season. That you need players that are willing to do the dirty work, if you will, and do the things that other people don't want to do. And those players are vital to the team being successful. And as coaches and as leaders, it's important that we constantly highlight that and praise that. So yes, being a role player is really, really, really important. Oh man, I love so many things about your book, but one of my favorite things is, you know, as a business owner, I'm taking a lot of principles that I can go and help improve, you know, the performance of my business. I don't think that a lot of business books, a high school athlete is going to be able to read and get a lot out of it. I'm thinking my son would love reading this book because you have so many great stories of, you know, the Michael Jordans and the Giannis's, the KD's. It's amazing how you could take something like a role player, which could seem like a negative, and throughout just a couple chapters, you can make a high school athlete really buy into a role player being something good. Even the fact of thinking, you know, saying that 90% of the NBA players are role players, that's such a huge shift in a thought process. Yeah, and I mean, if we're going to go by technical definition, every single person on a team and every single person in an organization is a role player because everybody has a different role. But the guys that can usually, that get more accolades, that get more shots or that make more money, they're usually not considered role players. And when you take somebody like LeBron, I mean, LeBron can play all five positions. He can handle the ball. He can shoot. He can attack the basket. He can pass. He can defend. Because he can do everything, we don't really call him a role player. But his role is to do everything. His role is is to facilitate everything on both ends of the court. But he's still technically a role player. I think... It's just that word's gotten somewhat bastardized because we tend to call the 10th man on the bench that doesn't play a whole lot 
well, you're just a role player. You know, your, your role is to kind of sit and watch during the games and then practice hard the other days. And that's not really the case. So for me, it's all about changing that terminology and letting everyone know you are a role player. And while you may not feel it all of the time, your role is so important to our collective success. And, you know, the best coaches I've been around, they go out of their way to add extra praise to the conventional role players because they know those players don't get the accolades or recognition that some of the others do. You know, the starting shooting guard that scores 25 points a game, you don't need to praise them too much more because they're already getting that from everybody else. But you need to constantly be in the ear of the 10th man and say, look, I know you didn't get to play a lot tonight, but I can't tell you how important you are uh, to our program. And that, you know, Joey played one of the best games of his his career tonight. And that's because you had such a good week of practice and that you pushed him so hard in practice that he was able to perform at a higher level today. And I want to make sure you know you were a major reason for that. And while everyone else may not see it, I see it and the rest of the team sees it and just know how important you are to us winning a championship this year. All the stories you have in there can take a high school athlete. And, you know, it's one thing for a coach or a parent to talk about being a role player or serving your teammates. It's another thing to hear Katie talk about he would like to be considered a servant because his job is to serve his team, bring his skill set that he has and make everyone else around him better. And I've heard it so many times. Hey, will you tell that story to my kid? I've been telling him. But all of a sudden, if Mike Nilsson tells him, it means something. And so this book is such a great compliment to being a coach or being a parent because you have all of these role models that our high school athletes are looking up to, and they're kind of telling the story for you. Oh, most certainly. And storytelling is such a powerful medium. One of the reasons, especially when I was still in the coaching world, you know, I don't believe in name dropping just to name drop. Uh, but to me, I learned at a very early age that... Uh, the coaching mantra, it's not about me, it's about you. I mean, that's professional speaking mantra 101. Every time I take the stage, it's not about me or what I want to say. It's about what I believe would be in most of service of the audience. So with that said, when you're communicating, the listener is what's most important. And I learned that if I was trying to teach a lesson to players that, yeah, I could tell them something about my own experience, but to be honest, they probably could not care less. But as soon as I mentioned KD, or this is something KD said, or KD taught me, all of a sudden they're sitting up a little taller in their chair. All of a sudden they're leaning in and listening a little more attentively. So I found that by using stories with some high profile names, you ultimately get the listener to buy in more, which is the original goal of communicating in the first place. I know at the time of this recording, we're, we're just over a week since the tragic passing of Kobe Bryant. And... One of the most important lessons that I've learned and certainly one of the most important lessons that I teach is what Kobe taught me back in 2007, and that's to never get bored with the basics. That if you want to be great at whatever you do, you have to continually work to master the fundamentals. Well, to be quite honest with you, Mike, I probably have 10 stories of my own personal experience that I could tell people about mastering the basics, and no one would care. But as soon as I mentioned, this is something I learned from Kobe Bryant, and this is his secret to being one of the best players of all time, all of a sudden now people listen. As tragic as that passing was, it was amazing that within 24 hours, I got hundreds of texts and emails and social notes that said, uh, Alan, you don't know me, but I heard you tell that story once and I'll never forget it. You know, hey, we've never met, but I was in one of your keynotes uh, six months ago and I remember that Kobe story that... I mean, it's amazing that just by using somebody like Kobe Bryant in the story, to tell a true story, of course, 
how much stickier that made the story. And as coaches, as parents, as leaders, as CEOs, our goal is to make the stuff we're sharing as sticky as possible so that it's retained and so that people act upon it. And by telling stories, especially stories um, that, that highlight people of note, that will increase the chance of that happening. So it's, it's really a tool that all of us should use. I, I think every coach on the planet should work to become a better storyteller. Well, the other thing that you did, you told stories of, of great basketball players, CEOs, successes. You also told stories about yourself, but more about your failures and how you're continually working on these things. And so I love how open and transparent you were. Actually, one of my favorite stories in the book was a story about you completing your marathon and kind of overcoming self-talk. I would absolutely love for you to share that story with the audience. Oh, no, I'd be happy to. And, and you know, when I was growing up, and I don't know if this was just the time or the household that I was raised in, but but failure was actually looked down upon. It was a bad thing. You know, if, if you got a bad grade on a spelling test, you know, you're not supposed to be happy about that. And, and what I, I started to learn over time was as long as you gave your best and as long as you were prepared and had a good attitude, any failure that's still a result is just going to be a learning experience. So um, over the last 20 years, I've really worked hard to – to try to change my perspective and mindset on failure. And uh, now I, I realize that it's part of the process. And I can't stress enough, this is, you know, if we use basketball as our analogy, I'm not talking about a player that, that makes a lazy pass or a sloppy pass that gets turned, you know, the ball gets turned over. That's just unacceptable. But if you are really trying to enter the ball into the big man who's posting up because he needs a touch and you picked the wrong angle and the ball got stolen, Okay, that's a momentary failure, but it's one that you can learn from. You were trying to do the right thing, and now hopefully uh, you've learned your lesson and you won't make that mistake again. So failure is simply a building block, and, and it's important that we're all very resilient to failure, that we never let us stop us completely, uh, that it is just a tool to continually get better. And uh, I make mistakes both large and small on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis, and I work really hard to learn from them and move forward. Uh, now, in reference to the story, uh, yeah, I, I had an opportunity to run a marathon back in 2001, so closing in on 20 years ago now, and and I just remember that that I went into the marathon um, unprepared from a physical standpoint, but probably way overprepared from a mental standpoint, borderlining on arrogance, thinking, you know, I'm a really good athlete. You know, a few years before that time of that marathon, I was a college basketball player. Like I really took for granted what it would take to prepare uh, for such a feat of running 26.2 miles. And I was definitely overconfident and uh, under physically prepared. And yeah, that that marathon was a son of a gun. That was a, a, a big, huge piece of humble pie uh, and really exposed all of the the deficiencies that I had when it would come to running something long distance, like lack of pace and thinking that I was much faster and better than I was. Uh, but it also taught me, as you said, that we all had that voice inside of us, that, that self-talk that either reaffirms that we're doing things right and that we're good enough, or it does the opposite. And it kind of tears us down and asks us why we're doing something or tells us to quit. And I'm a pretty optimistic guy. I'm wired very positively. I've been good at many things that I've tried to do in my life. So I don't hear from that voice very often. Uh, but that marathon was one of the first times that that voice came out and it came out really loud and, and basically told me, you know, around mile 17, 18, 19, that I should probably quit. There's no way I was going to finish. You know, I'd gone way too fast in the beginning and, and, and pretty much depleted all of my energy 
and there was no way I was going to finish. And, you know, uh, I will, yeah, say in full transparency, that negative self-talk definitely got the best of me that day. But thankfully now with 20 years of clarity, I can look back on it uh, and realize that, that I'm able to deal with that negative self-talk in a much more positive way moving forward. Well, I don't want to ruin the story for people that are reading the book, but one of my favorite visuals was this young, in-shape, strong basketball player walking as an older gentleman wearing a, a blue tuxedo, maybe, jogged yeah. past you. And I thought, yeah. oh, boy, way to add insult to injury there. Yes, and that's one of those ones. And I can I can still picture that guy as clear as the day, uh, just zipping by me in a in a blue tuxedo, almost like the one – uh, Jim Carrey wore in Dumb and Dumber. And, you know, it, uh, yeah. Now, what's kind of funny is it wasn't funny to me at the time, but now looking back on it, you know, I'm like, that was just done to put an exclamation point uh, on the negativity I was feeling. I mean, if I didn't feel bad enough that I was walking, having a guy 80 years old zip by you in a tuxedo, that will really make sure you take notice and feel even worse about yourself. And, you know, uh, yeah, looking back, uh, it was just a lesson that I needed to learn at the time. Um, I have not run a marathon since, and I, I don't know that I would do one, but I know that if I ever choose to, that I'll have a completely different mindset, both in the preparation and in actually the running of the race uh, that will ensure it's a much better experience if I ever decide to partake. Well, to finish this off, I want you to give us one piece of advice to the young strength coach that wants to make his career working with basketball players. I know you're kind of like the goat a little bit. You're like Michael Jordan. You retired at the top of your game. What's one thing you can help that young strength coach uh, to help them on their career path? Relationships are everything. And focus on connecting first and coaching second. That young strength coaches, at least I know this is how I was, are so fascinated with the physiology and the programming and learning new exercises and learning new techniques and designing a periodized program and how many sets and how many reps and, and all of that stuff's awesome. And I know that, that the nuts and bolts of being a performance coach um, are a lot of fun and are fascinating, but none of that stuff matters if you don't have a real connection with your players, that if you don't form a, a true relationship where they know that you care about them, um, you know, we go back to creating that environment where, where they have buy-in and believe in because they trust you, they respect you, uh, they know that you would get tremendous satisfaction out of them uh, improving their vertical jump or decreasing their 40 time or gaining 10 pounds of muscle, that whatever's important to them is also important to you. And if you can learn to establish that connection first, it makes everything else after that easier. You know, if, if you're, uh, we talked about accountability. If, if you want to hold somebody to the highest level of accountability, you can only do that if you've established some trust and respect and the caring factor. I mean, you can only hold someone accountable to the degree of trust that you've built with them. So I would say for young strength coaches, focus first on relationships. Realize you are in the relationship business and strength and conditioning and performance just happens to be the platform at, at which you, you know, at which you express yourself. It's the canvas at which you paint, but it's all about relationships. I love it, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom and passion for the game of hoops. Now, where can our listeners find out more about you? Oh, it's been my pleasure, Mike. This was a lot of fun. And, and I love, uh, I love sharing and talking shop with folks like yourself. Uh, if anyone's interested in the book, they can go to raiseyourgamebook.com. Uh, you can get the book. If anyone ever wants to order a team set for their whole team or program, uh, they can email me at alan at allensteinjr.com and I can give them a 42% discount on signed copies. Uh, I also recently released 
uh, some book study materials, a facilitator guidebook, and a team member workbook, uh, which coaches can use as kind of a team book study where the team reads a chapter a week and then does the exercises and activities in these guides and allows them to make sure that they're putting the Raise Your Game principles into action. Uh, and then I also launched a podcast called The Raise Your Game Show, uh, and you can find all of that stuff at raiseyourgamebook.com. And then if anyone's interested in, in my speaking services or you want me to come talk to your team or athletic department or school, just go to allensteinjr.com and I'm at allensteinjr on all of the major social handles. So sorry, the, the self-promotion piece was about as long as the whole episode. No, this is great stuff. I coach my son and daughter's teams and I'm thinking what a great opportunity to teach these principles, have the book and have the study guide with it. So count me in, especially if I want the autographed copy for sure though. Absolutely. It'd be my honor to do it. There's nothing I find I get more joy from than, than signing a book to someone. It really, really fills my bucket. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. Can't wait to connect again. Likewise. Appreciate you. Now that's a wrap on episode 25. It's easy to see how Alan has transitioned into a professional speaking career. I could listen to his stories all day long. One of my favorite takeaways from the interview was when he said, you can only hold someone accountable to the degree of trust you built with them. To me, that's why level one, Synergy, is the foundation of basketball leadership. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And you can't be a level three leader and serve your teammates if you haven't taken the time to build a solid relationship of trust and respect. Now, if you want access to my five-day basketball leadership and ball handling course, go to hoopcommitment.com and sign up today for free. And to all you who are committed, we'll earn your X. <laughs>